as we continue our current teaching series called Christ the King, where if you're new, we're studying through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, uh, right now, within Matthew's Gospel, uh, we are in a series, a mini-series, on the topic of Jesus' great power. Uh, as we've been learning over the course of this series, Matthew wrote his Gospel to reveal to us that Jesus is none other than the great King that God promised to send into the world who would one day rule over an eternal kingdom. And Matthew presents King Jesus to us, uh, not just as any king, but as a very powerful king. And that's the focus of Matthew chapters 8 and 9. Take a look. First, Matthew shows Jesus' power over disease. And then Jesus' power over nature. And then Jesus' power over demons. And then Jesus' power over sin. And then finally, Jesus' power even over death. So each week in this series, what we've been doing is we've been focusing in on one aspect or another of Jesus' great power, as well as we've been taking note of various people's response to Jesus' demonstration of power, like we did last week. So that's a little overview of the series, and now that you have that, let's jump into the topic we are studying today. Today we're in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, and in these particular verses in Matthew's gospel, he is highlighting for us Jesus' power over nature. We saw two weeks ago his power over disease, and today we see his power over nature. Mother Nature is a force to be reckoned with, is she not? Yeah, you better believe she is. She can go really, really wrong. Now, now this was not the way that God originally uh, created nature to be, but that's what uh, can take place today. Because though God originally created a good world where there were no natural disasters or things like that, when mankind sinned, sickness, disease, suffering, pain, and death were all ushered into the world along with natural disasters. God did not originally design this earth to produce tornadoes, nor was it his plan for the earth to produce floods, nor was it his plan for the earth to produce wildfires, nor was it his plan for the earth to produce earthquakes, nor was it his intention for the earth to produce hurricanes. Friends, all natural disasters ultimately are the result of sin having entered the world. Just as we have been subjected to the curse of sin, so has nature. As the Apostle Paul put it in Romans chapter 8, against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. When Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't only mankind that was brought under a curse. I mean, for us, it was the curse of death, for the wages of sin is death. But the creation itself also came under a curse. And we read about that in Genesis chapter 3. And it's because of this curse that the Apostle Paul tells us that all of creation groans longing for redemption. And what that simply means is this, creation groans and longs for the day where it will be restored back to how God originally created it and intended it to be. God has already redeemed our spirit 
for those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus to forgive us of our sins, we have been made new. And we read in Scripture that one day uh, at the resurrection, okay, at, at, the, ra- at the time of the rapture, uh, we will have we will be given redeemed bodies. So our spirit's been redeemed, and in the future, at the time of the rapture, our body will be redeemed. It will be made new so that our redeemed spirit has a redeemed body to live in for all eternity. But friends, that's not the end of the story. Our spirit's renewed first, then our body is renewed next, and one day, God will even redeem creation. Because God's not going to have our redeemed spirit living in our redeemed body live forever in an unredeemed creation. Like, no way. It's just not going to happen. Creation has to be redeemed as well. And it will be. And this is why in his vision of heaven, the apostle John saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Friends, this is a future vision of the redemption of creation. And though the redemption of creation is coming, it has not come yet, which is why here and now we suffer the devastating effects of natural disasters. And I bring this up because that's the very thing we see in our text today, a natural disaster. Today in our text, we see creation behaving not as God originally intended for it to behave. Rather, we see creation behaving uh, the way it behaves when it's under the curse that's been brought about from sin. I wanted to give you that theology of the redemption of creation and the theology of natural disasters uh, before we dive into our text uh, so that you can really appreciate uh, what's going on once we get there. Okay, we're almost there, but right before we get to the text, let me set the stage. Jesus has spent the day teaching and healing and exercising demons, and he is flat out exhausted. But the crowds just keep bringing more and more people to Jesus, even though it's late into the evening. So we read this in Matthew 8, 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, even at that late hour of night, he gave orders to go over to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. In other words, when Jesus saw that the requests and the demands were not going to cease, he sought an escape. So he gave orders to his disciples to get into the boat and to row him over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So they were in Capernaum on the north side of the sea, and Jesus gave orders to his disciples to take him to Gergesa on the east side of the sea, which would have taken him away from the crowds so he could get rest. Even though Jesus was fully God, friends, he was also fully man. And in his humanity, he was exhausted from ministering to the crowds. So verse 23 tells us that he got into the boat along with his disciples, and they just went over to the other side. Now, the second Jesus gets into the boat, it is lights out for Jesus. He went to the stern, which was the back of the boat. He grabbed a pillow, according to Mark's account of this same event, and he went right to sleep. And our story picks up today while Jesus' disciples are rowing him from Capernaum to Gergesa. 
All right, if you're taking notes, it was on the way to Gergesa that Jesus and his disciples encountered the storm. That's the first thing we see in our text, the storm. And we see this in verse 24, where Matthew, who was there, recalls, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat we were in was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. Now, when Matthew says, behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, the word behold speaks to the storm coming upon them in a rapid and surprising manner. So it just came up out of nowhere. And this was not any old storm. He says it was a great storm. In other words, it wasn't what the fishermen in the boat with Jesus were used to experiencing. I mean, the Sea of Galilee has storms all the time. Someone after first service today told me about going on the Sea of Galilee. When they started, it was clear skies. And by the end, he thought he was going to die as he was going up and down because of the storm. So, so, but this wasn't that. This was something entirely different. And we know that because of the Greek word that Matthew uses to describe the storm. He uses the Greek word seismos, which literally means a shaking. And it's from the word that we get our English word seismic from. So when there's an earthquake nowadays, we talk about the seismic activity, okay? The violent vibrations between the earth and its crust, which is just terrifying for people to experience. Well, this storm was so violent and so out of the ordinary that Matthew has to describe it as more of a violent earthquake on the sea than just some rainy storm, that the disciples might normally experience. Some commentators I read even believe that the storm had demonic origins. They believe that it was Satan trying to snuff out the light of the world before he could die on the cross for people's sins. And they see it as demonic because as we'll see shortly, Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves just as he does the demons. Like we'll see next week when we look at Jesus' power over the demonic realm. So friends, please get the picture in your mind, okay? The wind is going crazy. And in addition to the wind, the boat is just bobbing up and down as huge waves crash over and into the boat. One after another, after another, after another. But as crazy as this storm is, get this. Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. Now, don't be surprised by this, okay? Uh, I know I was when I first read it. I'm like, really? In that kind of storm, he's sleeping? So I had to go do some research just to find out, like, is there anyone else who slept through, you know, natural disasters? And I couldn't believe the amount of information I found. Apparently, this is not all that uncommon, okay? For example, just this past April in Washington County, Florida, a man named John Plistus slept through a tornado. When he woke up, his entire house was gone, all except the room that he was sleeping in. He walked out the room, there was nothing else. I read of a man who was asleep during a hurricane on the pier, and the cops had to go get him and take him away. And I read of others who were asleep during other similar powerful storms. One guy was swept away from his trailer park and only woke up in the woods where the storm had carried him. 
True stories. True stories. So don't be surprised. I guess the saying is true. Some men can sleep through anything. <laughs> we got any men like that here? You can sleep through anything, okay? I'm a light sleeper, but we got some say, I can sleep through anything. Well, that was the case for Jesus. He was exhausted. That morning, he had climbed up the mount to preach the Sermon on the Mount when he was done. And let me tell you how exhausting preaching is. Sometimes during third service, my mind starts breaking down. It is so physically exhausting to use your mind in this way. And Jesus had preached. And then he climbed back down the mountain. When he was done with that, he healed a leper and then he healed a paralytic. By this time, it's dinner. He stops in at Peter's mother-in-law's house for a little respite. But even there, he finds that Peter's mother-in-law has a deadly fever. So he heals her. And then he's like, oh, goodness gracious, uh, finally my day's over. But no, now the sun went down, which means it was the end of Sabbath. And the Jews back then were afraid of being excommunicated from the synagogue. So on Sabbath, they often wouldn't bring people to Jesus. But now the sun came down and they said, it's fair game. Let's bring all our sick and demon-possessed to Jesus so he can minister to them. And so after dinner, when he's ready to go to sleep, his day picks up. And it's at its greatest intensity. And long into the night, he's ministering to the people. And it's at this level of exhaustion that Jesus falls asleep. And not even a seismic-type storm can wake him. But let me tell you who was not asleep during the storm. It was Jesus' disciples. So now that I've shown you the storm, let me show you, secondly, the scare. <laughs> the scare. And here we're speaking of the scare the disciples had in the midst of the storm. And we see this in verse 25, where Matthew records how he and his fellow disciples, in fear for their lives, went and woke Jesus, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, friends, you know it's a bad storm when fishermen who are used to storms are scared to death. So we can only imagine how terrified Matthew was, okay? He was a tax collector before coming uh, to be a disciple of Jesus. His tax booth, it never shaked. It never went up and down in 40-foot waves. You know, none of that happened. So they were terrified. So they called out to Jesus, now, some of you think, oh, isn't that beautiful? They were in a storm and they called out to Jesus in faith and they just loved Jesus and they knew he cared about him. No, friends, that is not the picture that's painted uh, throughout the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this event. And here's what Mark tells us. He tells us that they were filled with something closer to anger than faith. Mark has them calling out to Jesus saying, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? So the disciples, they're, they're more angry with Jesus than faith-filled that he could use his miraculous power that they've already seen at work to rescue them in the storm. They're perturbed. He's sleeping. They're about to die. They falsely accuse Jesus of not caring, and they yell at him to wake up. And this is why the third thing we see in our text is what we're going to call the scolding, Okay. The storm didn't wake Jesus up, but the cries for help from his disciples did. And when they woke Jesus up, accusing him the way they did, it led to the scolding. When Jesus wakes up, he sees that his disciples are fearful. He sees that they are panicking, totally freaking out. And they see that they are accusing him of not caring. And this leads to the scolding. 
So take a look, Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, the first part of the verse, Jesus shouts to them over the sound of the wind and the crashing waves, saying, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Now, some people think this is a stupid question. Why are you so afraid? It's like Jesus, isn't it obvious why they're afraid? They're in a possibly demonic-inspired storm. Don't you know why they are afraid? And so it almost seems that it's a stupid question, but, but friends, I've studied this like, like really, really in depth, and as I studied it, I realized, oh my goodness, this is not a stupid question. This is a valid question that Jesus poses to his disciples. And here's why. His disciples were Jewish men who were taught the scriptures from infancy. And so these men, they knew Psalm 46, which says God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Friends, they knew Psalm 65, which refers to God as the one who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of their waves. They knew Psalm 89, which says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And finally, these men knew Psalm 107. Psalm 107 lists four groups of people who are rescued by God in times of trouble. First, listed in verses 4 to 9, are those who are wandering in the desert who are about to die from hunger and thirst, but they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and the Lord rescues them. The second group listed in verses 10 to 12 are those rotting away in prison who are forced into hard labor, and they too cry out to God and he rescues them. The third group listed in verses 17 to 18 are those who have been afflicted by the Lord with sickness to the point of death because of their sin, who also cry out to the Lord, and the Lord rescues them by granting them mercy and healing uh, their sickness. Fourthly and finally, There's a fourth group listed in verses 23 to 30. And the fourth group listed are those who are caught in a deadly storm at sea. We pick up reading in verse 23. Some went off to sea in ships, plying the trade routes of the world. They too observed the Lord's power in action, his impressive works on the deepest seas. He spoke and the winds rose, stirring up the waves. Their ships were tossed to the heavens and then plunged again to the depths. The sailors cringed in terror. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were at their wits' end. Lord, help, they cried in their trouble. And he saved them from their distress. He calmed the storm to a whisper and stilled the waves. What a blessing was that stillness as he brought them safely into harbor. Jesus scolded them because he expected them to have faith. 
Friends, it's like us today. When God proves himself faithful to us in situation after situation after situation, and then we find ourselves in another situation where we need to exercise faith in him and trust him to bring us through, God expects us to have faith because he's been faithful in the past. He expects us to have faith in him in the present. And in the same way, all throughout the Old Testament, God is the one who safely saw people in danger be rescued from that danger, even danger on a sea when you're in a great storm. And so Jesus rightly scolds them and rightly asks them, why are you so afraid? Hey, not to mention that, but in addition to this, I mean, they knew that Messiah was sent into the world to die for the sins of the world. And Jesus hadn't done that yet. So they should have had faith that God was going to spare Messiah as well as those with him until his appointed time had come. And besides that, Jesus' disciples had witnessed many times his power, so they should have known that he could help, and they had also witnessed his compassion many times, so they ought to have known that he would help. So Jesus did expect them to be scared, but to go ahead and call out to him in faith, trusting that he would help them, but this is not what they did. They cried out to him, accusing him of not caring if they died. And for such lack of faith, they received the scolding. But after the scolding, we come to my favorite part of the text, which I've dubbed the showcase. The showcase. And we see this in the second part of verse 26, where after rebuking his disciples, Jesus rose from the back of the boat where he had been sleeping and rebuked the wind and the sea. And once he did, Matthew records, there was a great calm. And friends, what Jesus did here, he showcased his authority. He showcased his power. He showcased his sovereignty over nature. And at his word, the storm subsided even faster than it had come. It came suddenly and subsided instantly at the word of Jesus. And in commanding the sea and it obeying, Jesus demonstrated that he not only had control and power and authority and sovereignty over disease like we read about in chapter 8 verses 1 to 17, but here now he shows that he also has sovereignty, authority, and power over nature. He commands, it obeys. But understand this, Jesus wasn't only showcasing his power, he was also showcasing, or you might say, giving a preview to us and his disciples of his coming kingdom. You see, in the kingdom of heaven, which is the kingdom that Jesus will rule over forever, we call it simply heaven, but it's really in scripture, it's the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, there will be no disease, which is why two weeks ago, Matthew showed us Jesus's power over disease. Likewise, in the kingdom of heaven, there's not going to be any demonic activity. And that's why next week, Matthew's going to show us Jesus's power over the demonic realm. In the kingdom of heaven, there's not going to be any sin, which is why three weeks from now, Matthew's going to show us Jesus's power over sin. In the kingdom of heaven, there's not going to be any more death, which is why five weeks from now, Matthew is going to show us Jesus's power over death. 
And last but not least, in the kingdom of heaven, there's not going to be any more natural disasters, which is why today Matthew has shown us Jesus's power over nature. So friends, do you see that in, in speaking to the storm and commanding it and it obeying, Jesus didn't only showcase his power over nature, he also showcased his coming kingdom where there wouldn't be any natural disasters. In the same way that in his kingdom, there won't be any sin, there won't be any death, there won't be any disease, so on and so forth. All right, let's move on to our last point. So far, we've seen the storm, the scare, the scolding, and the showcase, and now finally, we see the shock. And here, of course, we're referring to the shock of the disciples at what Jesus has just done. And we see this in verse 27. In response to Jesus' display of great power, the men marveled, saying amongst themselves, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? They marveled at Jesus. Now, friends, understand the uh, English word rendered marveled here. It refers to extreme amazement. But I want to explain to you what it was that they had extreme amazement over because it's actually not what you might think. They weren't nearly as amazed at Jesus' demonstration of power as they were about what it revealed about who Jesus really was. And that's why they marveled. That's why they were amazed. They were amazed because Jesus demonstrated the identical sovereignty over nature that God the Father had demonstrated all throughout the Old Testament. Who, who remembers the story of the Israelites coming up out of their slavery in Egypt? Remember what happened? They were leaving Egypt, they were trying to escape, and they ran into the Red Sea. So the Red Sea's in front of them, impassable mountains are on either side of them, and the Egyptian army is closing in behind them, and they're trapped. But at the command of God the Father, who is sovereign over nature, the Red Sea parts. The psalmist even records this in Psalm 106 verse 9. He additionally commanded the Red Sea to dry up, and friends, it did, so that the Israelites could pass through on dry, dry ground. So God in the Old Testament demonstrated his sovereignty over nature. He commanded it and it obeyed. In the same way, do you remember the story of Jonah? God had commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh. And when Jonah disobeyed God's command to go, we read this, the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Just like Jesus Jonah's in the boat sleeping. So the sailors wake him up and realizing that he is the cause of the storm, decide to throw him overboard. And when they did, by God's command, the storm stopped at once. It came suddenly. It ceased instantly. Sound familiar? But here we have a second example of God the Father in the Old Testament demonstrating power authority, sovereignty over nature. And Jesus' disciples are extremely amazed because they've just witnessed Jesus doing the very same thing. And that is why they marveled. It wasn't just about the storm. It was about what Jesus' demonstration of power revealed 
about who he really was. They knew that in the same way that only God can make the blind see, the deaf walk, the, uh, the, the deaf hear, the lame walk, they knew that only God could demonstrate sovereignty over nature. And that's the very thing Jesus had just done. Now, I point this out to you because most times when you hear this passage preached, it goes a little something like this. Jesus' disciples were at sea and a storm arose. Has a storm ever arose in your life? The disciples in the midst of the storm called out to Jesus. Friends, this is what you and I are to do when we're in a storm. We're to call out in faith to Jesus. And you know what? Jesus calmed their storm and he can calm yours too. Now listen, all of that is true, but that is not the truth found in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. Matthew is 100% trying to draw our attention to Jesus' identity, to who Jesus really is. And we know this because of the last verse recorded about this whole ordeal. Take a look, Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. The men say, what sort of man is this that even wins and the sea obey him? So you see Matthew's attention is on Jesus's identity. So here's a fill in the blank for you if you're still taking notes. The focus of this passage remains squarely on who Christ is, not on what he will do for you. Oh, if you're in a storm and you call out to Jesus in faith, oh, he will help you. He is an ever-present help in times of trouble. But friends, that's not the truth Matthew's drawing our attention to here in verses 23 to 27. He's trying to get us to focus on who Jesus really is. So friends, we've now seen the teaching, and so let's switch gears and just turn our attention briefly to how we ought to appropriately respond to such a teaching. And it couldn't be more clear that Matthew is calling on us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as God. This is the same thing the Apostle John was trying to do in his gospel. Remember how his gospel opens? The very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But friends, it wasn't just Matthew that said Jesus was God. It wasn't just John who said Jesus was God. Jesus himself said he was God. John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus claimed equality with God. And yes, Jesus made astounding claims. But remember that he always backed up his astounding words with astounding works so that we would believe the astounding claim. Matthew likewise knows that it's a lot to ask his readers to believe on Jesus as God, which is the very reason that he's taking so much time in chapters 8 through 9 to give us the evidence that this is so. In Matthew chapters 8 and 9, Matthew is saying, Hey, like God the Father, God the Son demonstrates power over disease and demons and sin and death and even nature itself. So Matthew's saying to us implicitly, so who do you think Jesus is? Only God is sovereign over all these things, yet Jesus was sovereign over all these things. So who is Jesus to you? Just a man? 
or the God-man. Now, maybe if you're new to church, maybe if you're new to tuning in online, you're like, how can Jesus have a dual nature? How can he be fully God and fully man all at the same time? Well, friends, theologians refer to this as the hypostatic union, which is just a fancy name that means he was fully God and fully man all at once. And today's passage is the perfect example that this is true. I mean, in Jesus' humanity, he, he was tired to the point of exhaustion, so we see him sleeping even through a seismic-type storm. That was Jesus' humanity. But when he woke up, we don't see his humanity anymore. We see his deity. And he commands the wind and the waves, and they obey. His humanity his deity. He is man, but he is God. And Matthew calls on us today to believe in him as such. Now, friends, when we talk about natural disasters, a lot of people say, oh my goodness, I can't even imagine getting caught in a natural disaster. I think that would be the worst thing ever that I could ever be caught in. But friends, the reality is there's actually something so much worse than that. Worse than getting caught in a storm would be to be caught unprepared for the coming judgment. When you will stand before King Jesus, who is more powerful than nature. Oh, we have an amazing demonstration of nature today, but let me bring it into the 21st century. I, I just finished a book called The Deluge by Douglas Brinkley, and I was reading all about Hurricane Katrina. You know, the winds were 175 miles an hour with gusts even greater than that, and it turned cars into projectile missiles. The hurricane was so powerful that it resulted in 1,800 deaths, $150 billion of damage, and it also was so powerful that it set off 36 separate tornadoes in the surrounding states. Nature's pretty powerful, right? Or what about this? Krakatoa. This was the biggest volcanic eruption. It was so loud when it exploded that the noise was heard 3,000 miles away. It threw dirt into the air that was five miles wide and 50 miles high. It created a 120-foot tsunami and it killed 36,000 people. We read about nature and we're blown away. We stand in awe. Well, friends, today we're talking about King Jesus and his great power, which exceeds the power of nature. Because when Jesus speaks and Jesus commands, nature dutifully obeys. So don't be afraid of some natural disaster. Be afraid of the one who is more powerful than any natural disaster that you will one day have to give an account of your life to. As Jesus himself put it in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he says, don't fear what can kill the body, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Friends, King Jesus is so powerful that he has the power to bring about our condemnation or the power to bring about our salvation. So don't let Jesus say to you what he said to his disciples in the boat, oh, you of little faith. Don't let him say that to you. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Do what the disciples ought to have done. Look to Jesus in faith. 
Do that today, and Jesus will save you from the penalty that God's law demands for sin, which is death. Friends, when we put our faith in Jesus, he saves us from physical death by resurrecting our body from the grave, and he saves us from spiritual death, hell itself, by taking the punishment for our sin upon himself, which is exactly what he did on the cross. So I would implore you today, to go ahead and cry out to Jesus the same as the disciples did. And if you need a sample prayer, use theirs. Save me, Lord. I am perishing. Only a few of us will ever need saving from a storm at sea, but every single one of us needs saving from the storm of the coming judgment, which will sweep away all who refuse to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as God. If you'd like to do that today, believe on Jesus for who he is. God, I want to invite you to join me in the closing prayer. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? I'm talking to everyone here in person. I'm talking to those of you who are online. I'm talking to everyone out in the foyer. I'm talking to you wherever you're watching this or listening to this. In your heart, maybe you would say something along these lines to God. Just say, Heavenly Father, Today I make my declaration that Jesus is more than man. Today I declare the truth that he is God. He proved it by demonstrating power over disease and demons and sin and death. And as we saw today, even nature itself. So today I place my faith in him to save me from the just penalty that your law demands for sin. I pray that you would allow the punishment that Jesus received on the cross to count as my own. And I humbly ask that you would grant to me eternal life. And God, now that you've redeemed my spirit, I look forward to the day where you will redeem my body so that my redeemed spirit living in my redeemed body can one day live forever in redeemed creation under the righteous rule of King Jesus. It's in his powerful name I pray. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. We would love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you, and we hope to see you again soon.